This is the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, Episode 20. We are talking to artist Natasha Bieniek. Hello and welcome to the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, a podcast for people curious about art and the lives of artists. In this episode, Senior Curator Danny Lacey talks to Natasha Bieniek about her works featured in the MPRG exhibition Obsession, Devil in the Detail. Natasha's works shrink the everyday down into microcosms. Her tiniest paintings are only 4 by 5 centimetres. Natasha talks about how she is reviving the tradition of miniature painting and why she has shifted from portraiture to landscape painting. Thanks for joining us today, Natasha. Thank you for having me. First, ask you, when did you realise that you wanted to become an artist? Well, I think I'd describe myself as uh, quite an arty and creative child. I think creativity is born out of curiosity and kids are quite curious creatures, aren't they? I think I was enrolled in art lessons outside of the normal curriculum from quite a young age, from maybe the age of 14. So I think I had a thirst to learn about painting from back then. I also had an easel set up in my bedroom from that time as well. And I remember sort of sleeping with open cans of turpentine and oil paint, which probably wasn't good for my health. I don't know why my parents kind of let me do that. So I think I knew I wanted to be a painter from adolescence, but I never really thought that it would be a possible career option until much later in life. When was that moment that you realised that you could turn that interest and passion into more of a career? Well, I went to art school back in 2004 and 2006, and then I spent some time over in Italy and painted in Florence. I learned the ancient tradition of egg tempera painting, and I came back to Australia and sort of didn't know really what to do, and I was still working in hospitality and ended up getting a job at the university at RMIT just in administration. And basically, I just kept working really hard. I ended up getting gallery representation quite young. And over the next course of the next couple of years, I did a couple of solo shows and then I got an opportunity to show at Art Basel Hong Kong in 2014. And from there, I decided it was time to sort of quit the day job and really focus on that because I had a very small time frame to do that show. So I thought, I've just got to go for it. (laughs) And that's what I ended up doing. And I was very lucky early on back in 2012 when I was awarded the Metro Prize. And that was quite a substantial amount of money. So it really enabled me to sort of do it full time. Yeah. Mm. Apart from the monetary value of that prize, there obviously would have been quite a bit of attention on you and your work. How did that affect the development of your work at that stage? It was difficult in that I think that I'm quite an introverted person and when, you know, you're an artist, you sort of have these dual parallels where, you know, you can be quite isolated But then there's this other side where you have to get out and talk about your work and there's sort of a performative aspect of it as well. So it was good in the sense that 
it created quite a lot of exposure and interest and I was able to get my work out there to a good audience and yeah. Mm-hmm. The first miniature painting you made was called October, which is a small self-portrait, four by five centimetres in size. What prompted the shift to working in this very small format? Yeah, so that was actually such a tiny painting. It was only about the size of a matchbox. And just on a side note, that was actually the smallest painting that was ever hung in the Archibald Prize, so I'm quite happy with that. Um, But... Yeah, I was inspired by the ancient tradition of miniature painting, which were significant in England and France during the 16th century. And these were beautiful little objects that often resembled medals or pendants and they could fit comfortably in the palm of one's hand. And their purpose was to portray an individual's characteristics and they often acted as a keepsake or they provided a visual representation for someone afar because, of course, photography wasn't invented at the time. But it wasn't until the 19th century with the invention of photography that inevitably led to the decline of the miniature portrait. But my intention was to revive this tradition, but within a present-day context. So scale has been a really important part of my practice. Very much interested in testing the limitations of oil paint and pushing the boundaries between scale and representation. And also finding a unique way where an audience can engage with painting, you know, because the work is so small, you do have to get up close to it to view it accurately. And that's creating a one-on-one relationship with the viewer and also an unavoidable intimacy. But the scale of my work is also indicative of the way that we often view images today. You know, as a culture, we are constantly glued to our iPhones. Like our iPhones have almost become an extension of ourselves. And that essentially miniaturises the way that we view images on a day-to-day basis. So that's something that I've been quite interested in. And I think that's reflected through the physicality of my work and... They often resemble sort of a iPhone shape and that sort of thing as well. So, mm. so there is obviously a high level of technical skill required to create these amazing works. What is the process that you use and what do you find the most challenging aspect to making these paintings? Yeah, so although I've spent about eight years painting on a miniature scale, I do still find it quite challenging. There's not a lot of room for error, so it can take many attempts to arrive at a satisfying point and that's particularly relevant with the portraits so even if a little tiny part is maybe one millimeter out of proportion it can just throw the whole painting off so it's a very slow and painstaking endeavor at times and it requires quite a steady hand and a lot of patience and concentration the paintings are built up over about six or seven layers of paint using very tiny brushes. I often get asked whether I use a magnifying glass. That's probably my most common question. (laughs) And at this stage, I don't, although I probably should get my eyes tested at some point. But I work directly from an iPad, which enables me to zoom in on detail. But yeah, unlike a quick snapshot, you know, 
oil painting, it's not instant and it forces you to really slow down and I like to get to know my subject over prolonged periods of time. And it enables me to reference uh, present day image culture in quite a poetic way. And for me, painting is the perfect antidote to the constant influx of images and advertising that we're exposed to in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. And when you're actually in the zone and painting for six or eight hours, yeah. where does your mind go? How do you <laughs> keep focus or do you go into more of a meditative yeah, sort of state? Yeah, it's almost like a trance-like state where I put my headphones on and I'll either listen to a podcast, sometimes music, but more often a podcast. And that sort of really focuses my attention to the painting, although I'm sort of listening to something and learning something at the same time. But yeah, it's really important to get into that zone because it does take a lot of concentration. And I feel like the headphones, you know, they cause less distraction from the outside world. And I'm someone that sort of paints for hours and hours every day without taking breaks. I sometimes I'll have to set an alarm on my phone to maybe get up and move around a little bit because I get in that zone and I just work and work and work and very rarely take breaks even to eat or to have a coffee or something. I'm just I'm a bit obsessive mm. in that way for sure. What impact does that have physically on your body if yeah. you're in a similar position yeah. actually painting. It depends whether I'm sitting down or standing up. I found that sitting down causes a lot of neck and back tension because I tend to hunch over quite a lot when I'm working. So that causes quite a lot of strain on those muscles. Um, standing up is probably a little bit better for physical reasons. Yeah, as long as the ground is comfortable and I'm not working on concrete or a hard surface, then it's much better for the body. But yeah, it's good to keep up with exercise and stretch out those muscles when you can, for sure. Mm -hmm. I like to start the day with a walk. It really clears my mind. <laughs> and how long, roughly speaking, would it take or would you set aside to actually complete a painting? Do you have multiple paintings happening at once? Or? Usually I do, yeah. yeah. With the miniature work, there's usually at least three going on at the same time because you do have to wait. Because I work with oil paint, it's very slow drying and I don't use a lot of mediums to speed up that drying process. So I like to wait at least a week between each layer because otherwise cracking and things like that can occur. So in that case, I do need to work on a couple of paintings at a time. Depending on what it is, it can be quite time-consuming, but as a general rule, I can make, if I work full-time without many holiday breaks or anything like that, I can do about 12 a year. That's probably my max. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very productive year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, beyond the technical dexterity in your work... Can you discuss some of the broader conceptual ideas that your work explores? I know you've already talked briefly about the way that we consume images in this society. Yeah. Yeah, great to yeah. hear. So the majority of my practice I've concentrated purely on portraits and figurative painting. But about three years ago, a shift occurred towards landscape painting. 
And the reason for this is because I became quite interested in the way that humans relate to nature, particularly in an urban or inner city context. You know, I think we as a culture are busier and more work orientated than ever before. You know, inner city living, it's fast paced, it's busy, it's noisy, it's crowded, it's populated, you know, traffic is a nightmare, trains are packed. It can really be an assault on the senses. You know, and I think many of us are totally divorced from the natural world, yet we rarely question the implications on our psychological or physical well-being. So I'm interested in the notion that a stronger connection to nature could enable us to further thrive as a species and enable a more satisfying existence. And it's the small pockets of nature, like the gardens that I've depicted in my paintings, that offer a sense of tranquility and respite against the chaos of a major developed city. You know, it's these spaces that enable us to recharge our batteries and recharge our souls. Like, if you think about our evolutionary history, the need to connect with nature has... We had a very strong and intimate relationship with nature. And I think that affiliation still exists today in some degree. You know, why else would we introduce indoor plants into otherwise sterile environments or pay more for hotel rooms that overlook a body of water or bring flowers into hospital rooms? I think these things are deeper than mere aesthetics and decoration and it's something that's deeply rooted in our biology. And for me... The natural world is the most sensory, stimulating and information-rich environment that people ever encounter and that's certainly something that I've aimed to reflect within my work. Mm. Why do you think art audiences are attracted to detailed work such as yours? I think particularly here in Australia, the general public love technical ability an artwork that's made by the hand and perhaps that's why the Archibald is so successful because maybe it's easier for an audience to understand a realistic or figurative artwork. Sometimes it can be less challenging. Yeah, it's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess you touched on the Archibald. You've been a finalist a number of years. What has that experience been like and do you have future plans to continue to enter that award? Each experience has been quite different. I was quite young when I was first in it. I was only 25 or 26 and I hadn't even had a solo exhibition at that point. So I was riddled with nerves and anxiety about being on such a public platform and public stage because, you know, people love to talk about the Archibald and they love to assess what's good and what their work is and what the worst one is. And, yeah, so you are really up for scrutiny. But then over the years I've just come to really enjoy the process. I think I've met some amazing people through the Archibald, made a lot of great friends... But it's whatever brings, you know, such huge numbers into a gallery, you know, it must be a good thing. So, yeah, it has been great in many ways. I've been in it five times, I think, and in the win prize once as well. So it has been a highlight of the calendar year. I was a subject for the first time this year, which was 
very interesting to be on the other side. A young painter, Ben Aitken, painted my portrait, which was a really great painting. I only saw it in the flesh when it was hanging in the Art Gallery of New South Wales and yeah, it's a massive work, it's two metres high and you know it's quite confronting seeing yourself <laughs> you know, at that kind of scale but I enjoyed being part of it on the other side as well. I will enter again at some point, I've had a couple of years off but yeah I guess I'm waiting for the right subject to come along and... Yeah, I want it to be a really impactful painting, so there's no rush for me, but eventually I'll get there again, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> now, your recent series of works are painted on large gold dive-on panels, and the small painted landscapes sit within this vast reflective material. We've got two of these works in the exhibition, Obsession, Devil in the Detail, what was the reason for structuring the paintings like this? Yeah, so it was a departure from my previous landscape format and the idea was to create an artwork that was both quite monumental and intimate at once. So for a work to have a significant presence on the wall but still draw the viewer in to examine the work at close proximity... And what I like about these works and this format is that they shift and they change within their environment. So they don't stay the same and they enable motion and movement and life into what would normally be a stagnant two-dimensional form. And with these works, the viewer inevitably becomes integrated into the composition as well because you can see your own reflection quite clearly. And the idea was to build up a tension that forces the viewer to reflect upon both themselves and my painting's subject matter. So I intended the work to be a little bit confronting in a way and I found that the response that I've had from my audience, that they've found that, yeah, a lot of people don't like to see their own <laughs> image in an artwork. But as you mentioned, the work is painted on dye bond and it's a material that I have been quite obsessed with over the last couple of years. It's a type of coated aluminium and it's usually used for industrial or architectural purposes things like interiors and exteriors and signage and you know ATMs are made out of it for example it's very strong and it's archival but it's uncommonly used for painting but I'm very attracted to its sleek aesthetic and you know it was important for me to incorporate a subject matter that would sort of counteract that man-made or sterile nature of the product and that's when I paired the landscape painting with the dye bond and I'm really interested in the way that they work together and that duality and sort of that man-made aspect and the painting of the landscape further illustrates some of the themes that I was talking about before and the way that we connect to nature in urban and inner city environments. Mm -hmm. Was it difficult to actually prime the surface to actually paint on, on yeah. the, the dive on? 
it's a process of sanding it and then you get a little bit of tooth from that and that enables the, the gesso to adhere to the surface so and then it's about building up the gesso maybe five or six layers and then I work on top of that but a lot of it's about masking off the edges to get straight edges is probably the most challenging thing <laughs> yeah I spend a lot of time trying to get that edge to be very accurate that's really important to me Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're quite mesmerising works, like you were saying before. They bring together, I guess, in a way, the portraiture with your reflection, which you can't help but be within the sort of artwork and the landscape, which is so beautifully painted in the middle of the work. Yeah. They're really um, quite mesmerising. Oh, thank you. Finally, last question. What advice would you give to artists just starting out? Primarily, I think you need to work hard and certainly say yes to opportunities when they present themselves even if that scares you I would say you need to get out of your comfort zone and certainly connect with other artists and lean on them for advice and support I think it's really important to have a solid network around you I think you have to be okay with being a bit poor (laughs) and in the early stages, living on things like toast and baked beans. (laughs) But yeah, I think it's one of those things where you either have that drive to pursue it or you don't because it is a very difficult profession. So yeah, you have to really want to do it to carry on with it, for sure. Mm. Well, thanks so much for being part of the exhibition, Obsession, Devil in the Detail, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to episode 20 of our conversation series. Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery is the region's major cultural facility and is supported by Mornington Peninsula Shire and other partners. Visit mprg.mornpen.vic.gov.au to find out about our latest exhibitions and events. Our 2018 podcast program is supported by the Gordon Darling Foundation. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode.